decided to break away from my series on John for one week uh, in light of the, the bushfires coming through Victoria. At times like this there is always immense suffering and uh, people have questions about that so I thought it would be good to have a look at the, the topic of, of suffering and, how, and what answers God has for us about suffering. So that's what I'm going to be looking at this morning. But before that I just thought I'd give a, a quick little book review uh, that might be helpful. I've, I've got a, a stack of these, about 10 copies. Uh, it's called Sickness. It's a, basically a little track that's been uh, made into a, a larger booklet by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle uh, died 1900, so he had a, a long ministry in the 1800s, and he was an excellent uh, minister. Uh, I love his writings. Before I, 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 I prepare my sermons on John, I turn to his expository thoughts on the Gospels as my first sort of line of thought and then move on from there to, to other theologians. He is, he is truly a great writer. He, he explains truths very carefully and well. So I've got these little booklets there and so if you have some questions still on suffering and sickness and, and would like to explore the issue further, this is a good start. Uh, these booklets I've got for they're 50 cents each. And so I've got ten of them and they'll be up the back or I'll, I'll be able to help you out if I forget to move them. So uh, yeah, I've got ten of those. If you're still interested in the topic of sickness and suffering after the sermon, uh, I'd encourage you to use this as a, a launch to further study. There's, there's other good books if you have further questions. But uh, a short little booklet and he writes extremely well and very clear. So uh, keep that in mind. All right, well before we look at this, let us speak with our God. Heavenly Father, we do come before you again and ask for your mercy as I speak on this topic of suffering. It is uh, a question that is often on our minds. It is something that we, we uh, find out about very early on in our lives, the pain and suffering that is in this world. We pray that we may be able to understand what you have to say on this topic this morning, that you may give us much light, illuminate our minds, Come and dwell amongst us and share your truth with us. We pray that uh, through this time we may be greatly encouraged and built up in the faith. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well firstly, uh, in the bulletin I've addressed uh, how suffering is ultimately a, a result of sin. So God did not create the world as a place of suffering. So that's uh, what I wanted to look at in the bulletin is how we, can, we have not brought this we brought this upon ourselves, that God did create the world as a paradise. The Garden of Eden was a perfect place, but because of our sin, because of man's sin, it has become a place of suffering. Uh, and suffering, therefore, is often our wake-up call to the fact that this world isn't all that there is. It wakes us up to the fact that this isn't heaven on earth. There may be something greater beyond this. And where are we headed and so it is that wake-up call that we often need, that the world isn't right, that there is something more, something even better. And we see that with the bushfires. I found an account, an eyewitness account, someone who experienced the bushfires coming, and it was the wake-up call for them. It says, uh, this is an eyewitness account from a woman called Mercury, says, within two minutes the sky went black with smoke, it was black like it was midnight, and the fire was right there. There was nothing we could do, we couldn't escape, we couldn't go anywhere, she said. Fire was falling from the sky, huge shoots of flame. Mercury, her husband, Rod and children, Alison, 11, and Dean and Kirk, both nine, 
took shelter first in the garage. When that caught fire, they ran to their shed before running back to the house. She covered the children with towels, just something to protect them from the scorching heat. We didn't have time to wet them. I couldn't even see them. It was just whatever I could grab in the dark and the smoke, she said. They were good kids. They were really good kids. But we were all scared. We were all so scared. We even talked about heaven. I like how there it says we even talked about heaven. It's kind of remarkable to her in a way that they started talking about heaven. And that is the case. In times of tragedy, people start to realise how this life is only temporary and they start to consider what is in the next life and whether that life will be better than this life. And so if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I want you to look at the suffering of people in Victoria and learn from that, that it is indeed terrible and to see it as a warning that things will only get worse, that one day this suffering will end in this life and if you're not a Christian, it will turn into an eternal suffering of pain and punishment worse than anything in this life and it goes on for an eternity in hell. So repent of your sins. Don't delay any longer and trust in Jesus. But that's not what I want to deal with this morning primarily is the topic of suffering and how it's come into the world. It is a result of sin, I'm not denying that. But I want to look at the issue of whether personal suffering is always a result of personal sin whether we can link personal sin with personal suffering. Because I'm not denying that when we sin personally, often suffering comes upon us. That's the way that the world is structured and the way that God uh, often brings suffering about. For example, if, I, if, if a husband is to commit adultery, often the marriage falls apart and there's terrible pain and suffering that results. And, that's just a, and so we can see a link between personal sin and personal suffering, personal pain and suffering. And it's the same with murder. You end up in prison if they catch you and you end up in pain and suffering there in prison for the rest of your life. There is personal sin that's linked to personal suffering. And Christians aren't exempt from this as well. God still disciplines us. He forgives our sins, but he does discipline us. Hebrews 12 talks about this. And so we've got to remember that, that just because uh, we are forgiven doesn't mean that we can't be disciplined by God for our personal sin. But the question I want to look at this morning is, is all personal suffering caused by personal sin or is there innocent suffering? Some people say that there isn't. They, whenever they see people suffering, they look for a sin in that person's life and they say it's been caused by sin and so they are constantly looking for the sin that's there. And we see that with the bushfires in Victoria. One Pentecostal minister has come out and said that he believes that the suffering that was experienced in Victoria is a result of their laws on abortion. Last year the Victorian government did change one of their laws and now you can abort a child in Victoria up to the ninth month. So they're actually aborting children. If the doctor says it's okay, they can abort a child into the ninth month. Terrible law. I'm not denying that. A dreadful law. We're actually infamous across the world for having the worst law on abortion there. And this guy had made a direct link between that law last year and the bushfires. He had a dream about it and so he is quite convinced in his mind that that is why the bushfires have come about. But is that true? Can we be so mathematically precise that when we see suffering we know that there's a sin somewhere and we can uncover it? 
Are we like Hindus where we believe in karma, that everything balances out even if it takes a couple of lifetimes to do it or many, many lifetimes, that things are balancing out? Is God that mathematically precise? Well, I believe that the Bible tells us that the answer is no, that there is such a thing as innocent suffering and the best example of this is Job. The book of Job gives us the answer that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. So let us look at that this morning. So my first main point then is, is there innocent suffering? And the answer from Job is yes. We see that Job is obviously suffering. I don't think anyone would deny that, that he has pain and suffering there. He has loss of wealth, children, and we didn't read chapter 2, but there he loses a lot of his health as well. He goes into immense pain. And there's even suffering from fire. We see that in verse 16. Just like in the bushfires in Victoria where people talk about fire raining from heaven in that eyewitness account I just read, we see in verse 16, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Tragedy from fire is not a new thing. It's back there in Job. Job, it could be dated very early on, close to Genesis. So uh, right there from the beginning, fire has been causing tragedy and it's still causing tragedy today. But is Job innocent in all of this? Has he done some sort of sin that's caused this suffering to come upon him? Well, we're told that this isn't the case by three different people in the book. Three different uh, people in the book, of course, we've got the narrator affirms it in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And then down in verse 22 at the end of the chapter it says, In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He is blameless and upright without sin as a cause of this suffering. And God affirms that he is not a sinner as well. So we've got the narrator affirming it and then God affirms it in verse 8. What does God say about Job? Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then over into the next chapter, which we didn't read, verse 3, God says the same thing. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Job himself affirms that he is innocent. So we've seen that the narrator affirms him as innocent, we've seen that God affirms him as innocent and we see it in chapter 12 verse 4. Chapter 12 verse 4, Job affirms his innocence and he affirms it many times throughout the book if you read the whole book but this is just one example. He says, I have become a laughing stock to my friends though I called upon God and he answered, a mere laughing stock though righteous and blameless. He affirms his own righteousness there and that he is without blame. And of course, we don't just have these statements. We know that the cause of his suffering is not because of a direct result of his sin, that God hasn't said, Job sinned, so I'm going to cause him to suffer. How does his suffering come about? Well, we know that Satan is involved. We see that in chapter chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But, and he wants it to happen, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. 
but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Satan brings on this suffering there, not Job's personal sin. And of course we see that God is involved as well. It's not just Satan, that there's some sort of dualism here where in God and the good forces are always fighting with the evil forces and you aren't so certain what's going to win. Who's clearly in charge here? God's in charge. He lets Satan do things only by his bidding that God is in charge of it as well. And so God's sovereignty in this suffering is quite clear. The question is, Job's blameless and upright. Is Job unique? Is he the only person who has been blameless and upright and innocent in all of history? Well, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that there is at least one great other innocent sufferer and that is Jesus Christ. He suffered innocently there on the cross. Yes, he had sin put upon him, but he himself was without sin. He suffered there on the cross as an innocent, as a lamb before the slaughter. And we know that Christians are innocent. Our sins have been forgiven. God doesn't say, oh, I only forgive certain sins, but then some sins you're going to have to pay for yourself. We know at the cross that Christ paid for all our sins. And so we are deemed innocent. We have Christ's righteousness put upon us. And so we are innocent. Just as Job there, he never claims that he is without sin. He does affirm his sinfulness at different points in the book. But he knows that he can offer sacrifices and be forgiven. And that there is no personal sin here that has led to his personal suffering. And there are some righteous behaviours that we know Jesus promises will end up bringing suffering upon us. When we stand up for Jesus Christ, when we become Christians, we're doing a righteous and good act and what results? We are warned that we will suffer for doing so, that we will be persecuted for doing that righteous act of standing up for Christ. So the innocent can suffer. I think I've made that very clear from Scripture. And so that's my first main point, that the innocent can suffer. My second main point then is the next question that comes along as soon as you learn that truth. The most obvious question is, well, why? Why does God let the innocent suffer? My second main point, why does God let the innocent suffer? Does Job have the answer for us? Well, ultimately, we do not get an answer. We do not find out why God lets Job suffer innocently. But God does not admit his guilt. He does not admit some sort of guilt that he has let Job innocently suffer. Instead, the answer that God gives to Job at the end of the book, you have this series of cycles of them having dialogue, of Job talking to his friends, they accusing him of being sinful, Job defending himself, and eventually God does speak. And that happens in Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38, God speaks. He speaks out of a storm. And I'll just read the first part of, of his long answer to Job. He says in chapter 38, verse 2, chapter 38, verse 2, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And so God goes on through all that, showing his power, his authority, his immense power in creation 
and continuing to look after creation. And so God is saying that he is the one who's in charge and who are you to tell me that I am guilty for letting you suffer? Because Job, even though he, he has not caused his personal suffering there, he is innocent, he does come very close to uh, questioning God and to trying to say that God is guilty here. And so that's why at the beginning there of, of chapter 38, verse 2, God says, Who is this that darkens my counsel? Job comes very close to saying, God, you've done the wrong thing here. He doesn't come out and say it quite, quite that way, but he, he comes very close. And so God says, who are you? Who are you to say that you know better? And so that answer, that there is no answer to why God allows the innocent to suffer, of course will never suffice with non-Christians. Because non-Christians, of course, have themselves as God. They know how to run the universe. They know better than God. And so they don't like the answer of, we don't know. But Christians, we have to recognise that God is infinite. That he is so much wiser than us, so much greater than us. And so we just have to trust that he knows what's going on. We can never put ourselves in God's place and say, If I were God, I'd do it this way. There's a book out, uh, a Christian book on suffering and and the title says, If I were God, I'd end all the pain. And it's an audacious title. Uh, It's a good little book but I always uh, flinch at the title because it sounds like the author's affirming it but I know that he's just trying to use the title to get people in because it is something that we all want to say. If I were God, I'd know how to do it properly. I'd take all the suffering and pain out of the world and I certainly wouldn't let innocent people suffer. But what does God say? He says, no, who are you? Are you God? Have you done all these things? This afternoon it would be good to read through God's response to Job. Job is an intimidating book to read all the way through and it can get quite... uh, and they go round and round in circles... And if you ever have conversations with people where they go round and round in circles, they do get uh, quite tedious at times. But read that answer from God to Job. Read that and look at God and his sovereignty, his power and authority and then compare yourselves to him and say, can I say to God, if I were you, I'd do it this way. There is no way we can say that if we're honest. God is so much greater. So we ask the question why, but we don't ultimately get an answer. We know that God is sovereign and that he is somehow working it for our good, even if we don't know why. And so that brings me into my third main point, is what are we to do when we suffer innocently? What are we to do when we suffer innocently? We know that innocents suffer. We don't know why. So what are we to do? Well, firstly, I want to say, make sure that you are an innocent sufferer. Look, if you're experiencing suffering and pain, think about your life and think about whether maybe it is discipline from God, that something you have done in your life doesn't make you an innocent sufferer, that God, you, your sins are forgiven, but God is disciplining you for what you've done. That's the first thing to do up front. But if you do decide that you are an innocent sufferer, 
that something is going on in your life and it is not because of a personal sin that you can pinpoint, then simply continue trusting God. That's what you've got to do. You've got to come to him and trust that he knows what's going on. And that's what we see Job do. He's a great example for us. Chapter 1, verse 21. What does he do when all this suffering comes on him? What does he say? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He has experienced all this suffering and still more is to come. Yet in all of it, he doesn't sin. He simply continues to trust God. And so that's what you've got to do as a a Christian. When you experience suffering and pain, you've got to remember that you've got to trust God. That's what you're meant to do. And this isn't a blind, sort of thoughtless submission to an evil God up there who's punishing you all the time. No, it's a submission to him and a trusting in this God who has revealed himself to you. Often before the suffering began, he reveals himself to you and is gracious to you in so many ways and you have so much evidence that he is there and that he is a good God. So it's not a blindless submission, a blindly trusting in this God who is causing you to suffer at this time. But it's a trust that he is a good God. So you need to trust. What are we to do when we suffer innocently? We need to trust God. Now I thought it would be helpful to point out two things I'm not suggesting. We're meant to trust God, but I'm not suggesting, firstly, that it's easy. It's all very well for me to stand up here and say, when you suffer, trust God. But it's not easy to suffer innocently. And it's something hard to understand that God could cause the innocent to suffer. It is something that our minds resist. And you see that with Job's friends. They go round and round in circles and they believe that they are defending God, that they are saying, Job, you've sinned, we aren't sure what it is, but you've sinned somehow and that's why you're being uh, persecuted by God. That's why you're you're being caused to have pain and suffering in your life. And so it's something that they are really trying hard to believe that the innocent could suffer. And we see that with Job himself. We see that he struggles to understand that he can suffer innocently, that he can experience this pain as an innocent person. And so that's where we see him draw close to condemning God. And I'll just point that out in, verse, uh, in chapter 13. Chapter 13, he starts to speak to God. In verse 20 he says, Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply, How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Job is actually feeling so much oppression from God that he thinks God is his enemy. And so we can see there that for Job it is difficult. We see that he does trust God but it is a difficult thing for him to do. When we experience pain and suffering, remember that we're meant to trust God but that it's not an easy thing to do and we have to battle at times to continue trusting him. The second thing that I want to say that I'm not suggesting is that we must ignore the reality of suffering. Some people seem to want to gloss over when someone suffers and want you to put it out of your mind. God is a good God. Just put it out of your mind. Continue going on. 
particularly if the, the pain is gone, it's something, if, if you know, I've read accounts where people lose a child and, and the advice that they get from other Christians in the church is you've got to forget about it, let it go and they never want to speak of it again. And so there's this, there's this glossing over it as though it never happened. We have to be, remember that Job did acknowledge his suffering he didn't try and gloss over and say, I'm moving on. No, what does he do? He, he puts himself down in the dust. He scrapes himself there and then he goes on talking about his suffering and trying to understand it. He recognises his suffering there. He doesn't cast it to one side and try and move on. And so it is with us when we experience pain and suffering. We've got to recognise that it is a reality. And that's the case with the bushfires in Victoria. We've got to recognise that people are in pain and suffering there. And they need help and we need to acknowledge the pain there and not some, get some sort of band-aid solution and quickly move on. That people are in pain and suffering and many of them will be Christians and suffering innocently. So we've seen that there is innocent suffering. We've seen that we often don't know why we suffer and that we're meant to trust God through it. My fourth and last main point is then what are the effects of innocent suffering? What are the effects of innocent suffering? Well, there's many, but I thought I'd give you two big ones. And I've touched on each of these uh, as we've sort of been going through. What are, what are the effects of suffering? Well, the first one of innocent suffering, there is a good, uh, there, it can bring good. It is a good thing even if our minds tell us otherwise. One of the effects of innocent suffering is good. See, our minds often want to tell us that pain and suffering isn't good, that it's bad. But if it's coming from God to us as his children, it is working for our good. All things work for the good of those who love God. Romans 8.28 It's a promise there to all those who love God that he is working for our good. It doesn't say all things except for pain and suffering work for the good of those who love God. It says all things. And so we may not be able to understand it, but... We know that it is working for our good and so we have to continue trusting in that. And the greatest example of an innocent sufferer who brought much good is, of course, Jesus Christ. An innocent lamb went to the slaughter, took our sin upon him and what did he bring? What did his suffering bring? Did it just bring more pain, more suffering, bad things into the world? No, it brought immense good. It brought so much good. It brought eternal life to so many people. It meant that God could bless people in the past as well, all through history, every blessing, every time there's rain on the land. It is because of Jesus and his suffering at the cross, his innocent suffering at the cross, that God can be merciful to sinful people is because of an innocent person suffering pain and anguish at the cross. And then the second thing the second effect that we can see from innocent suffering is the glory of God, that God is glorified in our suffering when we suffer innocently. And we see that with Job. How does he glorify God? Well, by trusting in, in God, he glorifies him by proving someone incorrect. Who does he prove incorrect? He proves Satan incorrect. Chapter 1, verse 9 Chapter 1, verse 9. What does Satan say? Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? 
You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your very face. He will curse you to your very face. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan's accusation is that when people trust in God, it is only for what they can get. It is only for the material blessings that they can get in this life. But Job shows otherwise. He proves Satan wrong and that gives glory to God that someone would continue to worship God and trust in God despite the pain and suffering, despite the material loss in this life, gives glory to God. Job doesn't take the advice of his, of his wife where she says, curse God and die. Instead, he continues to trust and he continues to glorify God in his trust there. And so this is the case for us as well, that we see that when we continue to trust in God despite immense pain and suffering in our lives, that it gives glory to God because non-Christians around us will say, how on earth can you continue to worship your God when he does that to you? Because they have the mentality of Satan. Do you, does, what does it say? Does Job fear God for nothing? They think that the only reason you fear God is for something you can get. And so when they see that thing taken away from your life, when they see you in pain, when they see you losing material wealth, they think you'll stop worshipping God because that's the reason you worship God. But if you turn around and say, no, I continue to trust God despite what pain and suffering may be in our life, then that glorifies God. That shows God as a greater God that he's not just there for what we can get. We trust and love him for who he is, the great God of the universe and that puts more glory on him and the person, the non-Christian, may start to wonder after all. Maybe there's something more to Christianity than just some sort of material blessing. Maybe there's something else there that these Christians worship him for something else and so more glory to God may be brought if they come and begin to worship God for themselves. And of course the greatest example of an innocent sufferer bringing glory to God is Jesus Christ as well. Just as we see that he brought the greatest good, so we see that he brings the greatest glory to God as he suffered innocently on the cross. What it took for God himself to come into the world, to suffer on the cross there, for our sin, our pain, for our torment in hell forever, makes him so much glorious in our eyes. He's a glorious God to begin with, but for a God to do that for sinful men, it makes him so much more wonderful. What love he must have for people. He is an incredible God to do that. And so we see an innocent sufferer bringing glory to God in immense magnitude, incredible amount. And so we should remember that, that when we suffer pain and persecution, that we can continue to bring glory to God just as Jesus continues to bring glory to God as his name is proclaimed and what he did on the cross. Every person that finds it out and believes and trusts in him, brings glory to him 
as he brings glory to himself on the cross. So when you see tragedies like these bushfires that have come through, be careful of condemning people. Be careful of saying, like Hinduism might want to say, karma, it all balances out. They have been doing something wrong down there and so they brought this upon themselves. No, remember that there are innocents involved. There would be Christians involved in those bushfires. I, didn't, I haven't read all the accounts and the media just brings up such a wealth of material. And I haven't come across... Oh, there was one account that someone told me about of a Christian man who died in the fires. Many Christians are involved down there and we cannot pinpoint them and say, they sinned and so they've suffered. God doesn't work that way. Often he lets the guilty go unpunished and gives them great wealth and often he lets the innocent suffer as well. But when that happens, when that happens to you, trust in God, trust in him and know that it's glorifying him and bringing about your good. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Job. We thank you for its message that speaks still clearly to us today, even though it was written so long ago. We thank you for the example he is to us of great faithfulness in spite of great suffering. We pray that we will continue to trust in you as he did, that when we experience pain in this life and suffering and we see it happening to us, even though we are innocent, we are forgiven by you and we cannot determine something in our life that has brought it upon us, that we will trust in you throughout it all and that this may bring much glory to your name. We pray that we will trust that it is working for our good, even though we cannot see how. And we thank you most of all for that great innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ himself, who came into the world to suffer and die in our place so that much good could be accomplished, much life given to people dead in their sins and much glory given to him. And we pray that we'll remember this at all times and continue to trust in you. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.